No, I was not the first woman governor of Texas. Well, in the 20s, there was Pa Ferguson who was governor, and Pa was married to Ma, and Pa died. And Ma became governor. Now, she was the one, when asked about bilingual education, who said, if the English language is good enough for Jesus Christ, <laughs> it's good enough for everybody. That was playwright, actor, and activist, Anna DeVere Smith, portraying the late governor of Texas, Ann Richards. It's part of her current one-woman show, Let Me Down Easy. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Anna DeVere Smith has won numerous awards, among them two Obies, two Tony nominations, a Drama Desk Award, and a MacArthur Fellowship. In her latest project, Let Me Down Easy, Anna DeVere Smith explores a vast topic, the human body, its illnesses, and its mortality. Before our eyes, she inhabits 20 people on the stage, from a rodeo bull rider to a doctor in a New Orleans public hospital, from a Buddhist monk to cyclist Lance Armstrong. Anna DeVere Smith is said to have created a new form of theater. Her work combines the journalistic technique of interviewing people with the art of interpreting their exact words in performance. It's part of her lifelong project titled On the Road, A Search for American Character. And search she does. Anna DeVere Smith's subjects are complex. She came to national prominence with her one-woman show, Fires in the Mirror, a play she composed from conversations with people who experienced or observed New York's 1991 Crown Heights racial riots. When the play opened in New York City in the spring of 1992, race was suddenly a topic on everyone's mind. Los Angeles had just exploded after police were found not guilty in the Rodney King trial. Well, it was supposed to have its first show on the night after the riots, and the show got canceled because of the riots because people really thought there was going to be another riot in New York. So those riots, I mean, all kidding aside, did turn my career around because even when I had the first meeting about that show, Fires in the Mirror in New York, the designers who were hired sort of roundly said nobody was going to care about the subject matter, race. And then with that riot, I mean, literally when I went to the theater at night, I felt like I was being pulled there. People were very, very concerned that this was America. How could this happen in America? So that work ended up uh, serving a need for people to have a place to come and think about or I would say bring everything they were thinking about race and my show was just a reason to convene people we had a lot of really interesting post-play discussions and then as and then actually I, I, I shortened that run or I, I mean the show kept getting extended but I could have probably played it longer but I then went to Los Angeles um in the August after the riots to start doing research for what was Twilight Los Angeles, my show about the riots in L.A. 
Anna, tell me, how did you move into this whole series, On the Road? What compelled you to do that? You studied acting in college. I studied acting, not in college, but I studied acting after college um, and ended up getting my MFA in it. But I, I was really interested in language. I had been a language major in college. I thought I wanted to be a linguist, but abandoned that for a number of reasons, not the least of which it looked an awful lot like mathematics when you really came down to it. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't really interested in the theory of language. I was really interested in speaking languages. And even as a language major, if you're a German major or a French major, it ends up being more about the literature, which is nothing the matter with that. But I realized what I was really interested in doing is making other sounds of different languages. That's what I liked. And in that way, what I do now is not foreign to that. Because for my approximation, although all the characters I perform are in English, uh, because I don't speak any other languages well enough to perform in other languages, they're all making different kinds of sounds. Nobody's making the same sound. So I'm a student of expression, and the thing that kicked my interest off further was actually my classical training at the American Conservatory Theater, studying Shakespeare, and part of uh, Shakespeare's extraordinary genius was his attention to how people actually speak, not what they're saying, but how they express themselves and what that tells you about not just their social place, but also about their mental state. And so as far back as the 70s, I developed a keen interest in that and started interviewing people so that I could study exactly how people speak and what that would tell me about them and also about the time they lived in. And so this whole thing on the road to search for American characters has been going on for a long time with the first production having been in the early 80s with other actors. You really created documentary theater. It's creative nonfiction on the stage. Well, that that's a nice way to say it. Usually people don't put the whole thing with documentary theater into what you said, creative nonfiction on the stage. Because, of course, ultimately there is something fictional about what's ultimately produced because in the case of Let Me Down Easy, I interviewed 320 people on three continents. So to narrow that down to an hour and a half or hour and 41 minutes or 40 or hour and 39 minutes, depending on the night, in the theater means that there's something about it which is not just documentary. There's another, my imagination has been at work and the imagination of the people who work with me has been at work. You made a decision that you were going to include people's exact words. Yeah. Tell me why. Well, I'm using exact, not just words, but I'm striving to use exact utterances. And that goes back again to what I was saying about how I'm a student of expression. What I really am interested in is how people express themselves. So I mentioned that I did 320 interviews for this show. I mean, Every single one of these 20 people who's in the show has an extraordinary way of expressing themselves, both physically and vocally. And that's what I'm studying, and that's what I feel so blessed to have a chance to come out and do every night. You know, I just finished watching this great documentary on Paul Taylor and his dancers talking about, you know, what it means to dance or what it means to spend an hour in the studio you know, I get to go out every night and to reiterate these 
expressions that I think are just beautiful in every way. But by doing that, clearly you also want to reveal something to the audience, or many somethings. Yes, many somethings. There's an Episcopal minister who came to see the show last night, and, and he was saying that the play is a lot like the gospel in many ways, and I'm not a student of theology, that what it's bringing is the good news. And even though the play brings some troubling news, I think ultimately it brings the good news that um, evil won't win and that grace and kindness will always outweigh suffering. And so I feel that the play is also about what Reverend James Cone, or Dr. James Cone, Professor James Cone, he has all three titles, says in the beginning is that it's about love. And so I think that's the good news I'm bringing every night. Every one of these 20 people also loves something, and they express what that is that they love. How did the project Let Me Down Easy begin? It began when I was invited to come to the Yale School of Medicine and to make a uh, performance for Medical Grand Rounds, which is usually, you know, scientists or people lecturing about serious matters. I was invited to come and interview doctors and patients and then to create a performance for Medical Grand Rounds by the doctor who was then head of internal medicine, Dr. Ralph Horowitz, who was very interested back then in the late 90s in trying to bring to Yale some questions about how doctors as, as scientists were or were not really taking care of people with the idea that you really need to listen to somebody before you start doing things to them. Here's Anna DeVere Smith as Ruth Katz, a patient at the Yale School of Medicine. And an oncology fellow, who's, which is not one of our full-time faculty, but someone who's in training here, specializing in oncology, came into my room. I want to apologize, but we can't find your records. <laughs> Could you tell me what kind of cancer you have? I said, this is appalling. He said, no, hey, it's not just you. <laughs> it happens here quite a bit. I said, I am appalled for every patient who comes on this unit. And I had to go through from like the beginning my whole story. Well, eventually I'll tell you, I'll tell you as an aside, eventually I knew I could tell by his question, that he was going to get to the question of, do you work? And I've never advertised my position around here. I just want to be treated like everybody else. And so, uh, you know, he says, do you work? You know, about midway through his questions. And I said, I do. And he said, uh, are you working full time? And I said, I am. And he said, where are you working? I said, I'm associate dean at the medical school. <laughs> Now he looks up <laughs> at this medical school, I said, at the Yale School of Medicine. He found my files within a half an hour. This whole project made me start to think about the difference between science and healing. And big, and for me, a bigger question, given my long project on the road to search for American character is, how do we have a caring nation? And I hope that even though this play, certainly there's no way you could see it and not think that I'm 
um, supporting health care reform. But nonetheless, I'd, I'd even like to hear from the other side of the aisle in terms of how we think we're going to create a caring nation, which is about health care. It's also about education and a lot of other things. So I think we're at that critical moment. Let Me Down Easy, though, is not just about health care. It's really about the body and the body's vulnerability. It's about the vulnerability of the body. It's about the resilience of the spirit. A lot of the people in the play have very strong bodies, conquering bodies. Lance Armstrong is a well-known person who has a conquering body. There's also a less well-known former heavyweight champion, Michael Bent, boxing, heavyweight boxing champion, um, a bull rider. Brent uh, Williams. Brent Williams, the well-known model, Lauren Hutton. All of these people brought their bodies into public and were able to rule and reign because of something, some kind of innate and trained power that they had. You know, in the case of Lauren, it was an innate presence, you know, the famous gap-toothed smile. She changed the way modeling was ever. She was the first supermodel, first one to sign a contract, discovered by Diana Vreeland. We know what Lance Armstrong has done. My play tells you the story of Brent Williams, the bull rider, and Michael Bent. So on the one hand, we have examples of that kind of physical achievement. On the other hand, the awareness that the rumor is true. We are mortal. And also, the play makes it clear that not everybody gets a fair shake. There are people in this play that have things happen to them that wouldn't happen to them if they were rich or if they had power. And all of the rich and powerful people in the play speak about their own awareness of their advantage. It's maybe only in one line. You know, Governor Ann Richards, who sort of the 11 o'clock number brings a house down, you know, at a certain point says, I'm just so glad I can afford this. So everyone's aware of the possibility that some people may not be taken care of, even when they are aware that they're getting the best. You have a very moving part in, well, there are many moving parts in Let Me Down Easy, but you speak to Dr. Kurtz Burke at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, and that was an extraordinary moment. Yeah, she's an extraordinary person. She's a white woman, advantaged, went to Barnard, uh, was then trained at Charity Hospital in New Orleans. Incredible doctor. I went down to New Orleans after Katrina, and... uh, I was just blown away by everybody at Charity Hospital, the first public hospital. Well, some people say Bellevue was, but one of the first public hospitals in America. When I got down there to Charity Hospital, there were doctors on ladders painting their clinic themselves because they really wanted to get back to work and help their patients. And so what Kirsta, what happens to her during Katrina is her realization that as a privileged person, She had advantages that she didn't even realize, even though she'd been working in a hospital for poor people. But to see that they were the last ones out, that on the fifth day they were still there, the sixth day they were still there. Nobody, not the government, not FEMA, nobody had come to rescue them. And this just blew her mind. It blew her mind, but what blew her mind further was that all the people she was working with Many of them African-American didn't even expect anybody to come to help them out. And so she talks about how, you know, there's this deep, 
deep distrust, this deep down, you know, lack of trust in the government. And what is especially remarkable to me about that piece is it's one of the two pieces that audiences respond to or tell me afterwards that that really got to them. And that's the good news, because let's face it, who comes to the theater? Privileged people. But that they're so taken with Kirster's report about a lack of equity means a lot to me. I, I think that's good news. I think that's a really good sign. Because the people who come to see my shows, let's face it, this is not singing and dancing, right? <laughs> this is not singing and dancing. So people who come to my shows are also people who could make a difference where they live, where they work. And I'm pleased that Kirsta Kurtzberg means something to them. It was a wonderful moment because I think in however long, seven minutes, eight? Yeah, she's the longest piece in the show. You just encapsulate the two Americas. Right. And the different expectations. Right. That really says it the best, what you just said, the different expectations. Cornell West, who I admire so much, and I performed him in my play Twilight about the Los Angeles riots, he, he said something that I just will never forget. He talked about black sadness. And he talked about the sheer joy of being human has been truncated. The sheer joy of being human has been truncated. I have a dog. When I watch my dog, she's basically in a state of joy. She basically wants to move. She's excited about the simple things, moving, seeing other dogs, seeing people. That's her natural state. And I think that's really how we as linguistic animals come into the world, with that state, that expectation that everything's going to be okay. Then we learn that it's not and that some of our hope is truncated or the sheer joy of learning all of these things. So that lack of expectation, or what Kirsten says, that heavy sense of resignation to be resigned to this notion that this is what I get and I will not get any more is a big problem. Because leadership comes, or I've seen in my lifetime, is the great leaders are the people who come forward and say, we should expect more, we deserve more. And I've seen it change. I've seen it happen. You know, the great leadership, obviously, of Martin Luther King, but also the people who aren't famous. So without that expectation, you're not going to have possibility, and you're not even going to have social movements. So I think that Kirsten, so succinctly, as you said, brings us also that robbing of the expectation is probably one of the things that makes her passage so meaningful to audiences. Because we want to believe that America is the place of expectation for everybody. Mixed into that are moments of grace. And grace, as you mentioned earlier, is very critical to your work. And it clearly plays a very important part in Let Me Down Easy. Talk about what grace means to you. This sounds like a joke, but I talked to a, a Buddhist monk, an imam, two Christian preachers and a rabbi all about this notion of grace. And it turns out it's a Christian idea. It appears in other forms. The Jews, for example, have mercy. But I think that grace, well, somebody gave me this great quote, which, you know, for those who are, uh, I suppose, believing Christians that 
quote is, God's will will not take you where God's grace cannot keep you. God's will will not take you where God's grace cannot keep you. So I think in a religious sense, some people really believe that grace is this idea that, as I've said earlier, you know, everything's going to be okay. However, grace also means in that song, Amazing Grace, there's that strange line that I'm not sure I understood before I started thinking about grace that is, I was a wretch. To save a wretch like me. To save a wretch like me. I thought, well, what does that really mean? And so both Reverend Cohn and Reverend Gomes were represented in the play, although not with these lines. Talk to me about what that means. It means that we all have a share in the failed part of the human enterprise. It means that we're all responsible. We're all responsible doesn't mean praying and then everything turns out okay. It means we all have responsibility. So if you think about it, when a surfer achieves grace on the wave, that is with his or her full participation. So I think, and we think of the grace that we love to see, the grace of a dancer, the grace of a good deed, It's never easy. It's never easy. It is through our full effort. And by the way, that is something that also inspired me when you asked how it began at Yale. I realized from talking to the patients how much they all had to be very active participants in their care. You just can't have things done to you You have to rise to the occasion. So I think that's what grace is. It's rising to the occasion of the struggle, but believing that help is on the way. (laughs) Even if that belief that help is on the way is the only thing that gets you through. Let me ask you, you've, you've talked to over 300 people for Let Me Down Easy, how did you find people responding to you? Were they willing to talk to you? Because words work both ways. They reveal, but they can also conceal. Well, that's one reason why I decided that this project would not end at Yale. I mean, the Yale thing was a gig, and it was an honor. I was, you know, it was a visiting professorship, all this. I mean, I didn't really believe, couldn't imagine me, a clown, could have anything to say to them. But what was stunning to me as a student of expression is that when I sat down, and and by then I, as I mentioned, done many of these projects, talked to all kinds of people, from presidents, three of our presidents actually, to Korean shop owners whose stores were burned to the ground in Los Angeles, I sat down at Yale and turned on, you know, this is before something as nice as your Marantz, turned on my tape recorder. I only had to ask one question. What happened to you? And people were singing songs. They were bringing in their grandchildren. One lady got up, took off her clothes, showed me her scars. I mean, they, people were, people, one woman prayed. I said, did you pray during this? Yes. Could you pray for me? Father, here I am again. I mean, like unbelievable singing. One little girl came in and read to me from her diary when Grandpop was getting 
a um, heart transplant, and she was so afraid he was going to die. The range of expression was just unbelievable. I never had the chance to meet the great Eudora Welty, but in reading about her, I always remember this part about how she as a child wasn't allowed to sit at the table when all the grown-ups came on Sunday to talk, but she would sit out in the hallway and listen. And she said when they started talking, her ears would open up like morning glories. That's how I felt sitting in that office at Yale when people started to talk. And so... This is an area around which people are happy to talk to you, their body. And so that's what I found out on three continents and 300 interviews. People want to talk, and they're very expressive about this. Anna DeVere Smith as Brent Williams, rodeo bull rider. Toughness? Well, we was in West Jordan, Utah, and this bull shoved my face right through the metal chutes and <coughs> tore my face all up. And, uh... Took me to hospital, took me five hours sewing up my face, and then the next day they straightened out my nose. And I had a rodeo that night, so I didn't want them to put me under anesthesia or whatever, however you say that word. And uh, when they straighten out, so I told them to do without it. And when they straighten out your nose, they take these two metal rods and shove them up your nose and work their way up. And it felt like it was just going out through my brains and out the top of my head. And everybody said it should have killed me, and they didn't even knock me out. But I have a high tolerance for pain. (laughs) But the good thing about it was, once they straightened out my nose, I could breathe. And I couldn't breathe since they broke my nose in the high school rodeo. Let me down easy. Where did the title come from? Woke up one morning and thought, that's what it should be called. You've been doing this project, the On the Road series, for quite some time. And it's the search for American character. Thus far, what have you discovered? Well, let me say, first of all, that when I was a kid, my grandfather said to me, if you say a word often enough, it becomes you. So just like a photographer would take a picture or a musicologist would collect music, I've been trying to absorb America by speaking the words of the people in the hopes that I would, again, come out of all of this with a grand picture in my mind of America. I told you I'd studied Shakespeare. One of the books that influenced me in the study of Shakespeare was a book called The Elizabethan World Picture, which was really about Shakespeare's imagination and looking at his language of evidence about how people were living at that time. And so I haven't really stopped to look at my work in that way to see what the picture is. But this will sound really sappy, but I do believe that one really fundamental part of American character is what the bull rider says when he talks about bull riding and he says, you know, when you ride bull and you do good and you're riding, you just feel like life couldn't be better. Like this is, that's what life is supposed to be. Just feel like, he says, I don't know. He says, because there's so much power in it. If you think about it, we shouldn't be able to stay on the back of a bull trying to buck you off because we weigh 150 pounds. Bull weighs like, you know, over 2,000 pounds. But I think it's determination. I think it comes from inside you, keeps you on that bull. I think that's, when I learned that in the riots, I learned it in some of the pieces I made about academia. I think, in fact, that icon of the bull rider is kind of fabulous for us. 
is just this notion that when you are doing well, you just feel like life couldn't be better. And this belief that what's going to help you do well is determination. Now, there are a lot of things that maybe make that not true. (laughs) But we believe that. (laughs) You know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking... Indeed, you do champion vulnerable people, and you kind of mediate them for the audience. Why do you think a mediator is necessary? In other words, we can sit in the theater and be very moved by the doctor at the charity hospital in New Orleans, and at the same time, we can leave here and walk past people sleeping on grates. Well, you've said it all. I think um, as a reporter of some troubling things... All I can do is spark the imagination of the people in the audience to take a minute to imagine that other life. And for some of them, they really open up their heart. And that opening of all of our hearts makes us understand. And the same thing happens to me if I hear a beautiful piece of music or I go to a good documentary. We understand the volume of our own potential to feel for the other, right? Which has got to be a part of what helps us feel cousins to the whole display of, of our humanness. And I think that that must be for some people, even if they're looking at things that are less than beautiful, it must be a good feeling because we want to know the depth of our own ability to feel for the other. Grace. Grace. Anna DeVere Smith, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Anna DeVere Smith. She was talking about her current production, Let Me Down Easy. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Let Me Down Easy, written and performed by Anna DeVere Smith, use courtesy of Arena Stage. Excerpt from For Eric, Piano Study, from the album Metascapes, composed and performed by Todd Barton, use courtesy of Valley Productions. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on Beyond Campus and look for the National Endowment for the Arts. Next week, a conversation with NEA Jazzmaster Ron Carter. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.